Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to Little Cuts, our weekly mini soda. We dig into the things that we've been watching and I believe playing. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth, and also reading. Uh, this week we're chatting I'm also reading. about a surprising adaptation, the latest from Studio Ghibli, realistic murders and meta storytelling, uh, fascinating narratives, and ritualistic. It- what did I say? Realistic. <laughs> Ritualistic murders. Uh, Anita Jones in hell. <laughs> <laughs> it can be realistic too. You're right, Kate. <laughs> I'm obviously we're recording this on Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and obviously my brain going from coming back from Japan and then having jet lag and then having it be Thanksgiving. I am like, I don't know what's happening. It's great. <laughs> I'm just here. But it's good. We're here. We're here to uh, talk about movies and stuff. And I hope everyone had a thanks. good Thanksgiving uh, and didn't have too hard of a time with family. And you could have a little bit of relaxation time. And if you had to work, uh, I'm so sorry that capitalism is garbage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. And on that note, surprising adaptation. <laughs> yeah, so... Um... I, I can't really talk too much about this because I don't want to spoil okay. it. However, um, I've been watching the uh, animated Scott Pilgrim Takes Off. Oh, I have to watch that. I say it's surprising because while it starts as a pure adaptation, it's not a pure adaptation. Okay. And it does something very surprising. I saw, I was scrolling on TikTok earlier in the week and I saw, um, I saw someone doing a video saying that like Scott Pilgrim takes off is as if like, oh gosh, what's his name? The writer of the... Oh, um, Brian Lee O'Malley. Brian Lee O'Malley. As if Brian Lee O'Malley has gone to therapy. Good for him. I, I, I can't, I cannot uh agree more with that because i I mean you you if you are familiar with scott pilgrim it's it's about scott who is in love with this manic pixie dream boat girl named ramona flowers that rollerblades through his mind in a dream and then he sees her in real life becomes obsessed with her discovers that she has seven evil exes and must destroy them all to win her heart and there's a lot of other weird things like the fact that he's somewhat dating but not really a 17 year old high school girl Uh, at the same time yep so there's a lot of like weird awkward things that like you know i so here's the thing i love the movie i've never read the comic but i love i love the movie but i also love edgar wright a whole lot i love the the kinetic energy of the film it's one of those things that's like you look back on it and it's like ooh, there is some 
weird things here. This show kind of goes about trying to correct it. And I, I really wish I could talk about it and really tell you why I'm really enjoying this. But I also don't want to spoil why I'm really enjoying this. So I will say that if you're a fan of the movie, this is sort of like an alternate telling of it. And okay. if you were like put off by some of the things in the movie and or the comic, because I'm, I'm guessing the comic is similar yeah. in that regard, this is a very surprising adaptation. And I will leave it at that. Okay. Like I went as Ramona Flowers for Halloween one year. Like I dyed my hair blue. I loved the comics so much. Like they were the... So it's funny because those were the first comics to get me into comics and that's how I found the local comic book store around here Third Eye Comics Um, and that's how I found it because I was looking for the the next Scott Pilgrim because I was reading them when they were still coming out like it had they all of them hadn't come out yet and so I was trying to find the fifth one and they were the only place that had it and then I have been going there ever since and it's been really cool to see them expand but like I have been a huge fan of Scott Pilgrim, and I loved the comic, but I also loved Ramona because I felt a lot like Ramona. Um, mm-hmm. And like, it's she is like a manic pixie dream girl, but I like definitely felt kind of like her. And I do think, I mean, maybe because of how I read the comics, but like, Scott's always been such a dick. Like, I've never, he's never to me been like a sympathetic character necessarily. Like, he's right, I think. A really early example of toxic, like we can get ner- toxic masculinity in nerds, but making it a little bit more charming. But I do, I do think that it is a really interesting early look at fuckboys, especially fuckboys who yeah. think they're nice guys. So I'm excited to watch this because it sounds like it might interrogate that way more than the original series did. But I do love that movie. Brie Larson singing Black Sheep by Metric. I mean, come on. Iconic. Iconic. And that's the other thing I love. One moment. I've got to check a pie real quick. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, just leave it out. (laughs) (laughs) I had to make sure the pie crust was was cooked enough. Listeners, literally the day before Thanksgiving is when we're recording this. So... It's like the la- it's like the last big step in making this fucking pie, and it's done. Thank you, Steve. Anyway, but speaking of so the iconic performance of the the metric song that I love that that this brings back the entire cast of yeah, the movie. Yeah, I do love that. I did know this. Yes, and because it is like eight episodes of twenty twenty to thirty ish minutes long in length each episode, we do get to see a lot more of the characters other than scott in this because we have more time to spend with wallace and we have more time to spend with young neil Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot i i I do think that there's some really interesting things here on top of some of the twists and turns that this uh series takes hell yeah so i highly recommend it particularly for those that are like you know i liked it but that was a little weird yeah (laughs) like looking back on it um because it does do some very intriguing things with with a very familiar narrative uh so yeah i really i really dug it and it's on netflix the entire show is on netflix right now so go check it out cool all right so keeping in the animation realm let's talk about studio ghibli is that how you pronounce it? Yes, yeah, Ghibli. So I was lucky enough to see uh, the press screening of his latest film, The Boy and the Heron, which I believe is his first film in, I think, 10 years. Um, Dang. Yeah, I believe it's 10 years. Um, and I am a Studio Ghibli 
freak. I mm-hmm. love all of his movies. Um, Hayao, Hayao Miyazaki is the man who founded Studio Ghibli, done films like Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, My Neighbor Totoro. Like, most people who know anime have know about it because of Miyazaki, because of mm-hmm. his work. And Spirited Away was, like, this big deal because it was the first animated movie to win. Hold on a second. I need to make sure that's right. But it won, like, this... It won an award for the animation. And it's an absolutely incredible movie. And so I... Princess Mononoke is my personal favorite of his, but so this is his latest film. It's essentially yeah, it's this latest film after The Wind Rises, which is like was not so Miyazaki's known for being very fantastical in his movies, but The Wind Rises was more of a drama about the guy who made airplanes they used as kamikaze planes in World War Two, I believe. Oh. And a lot of his work grapples with World War II and does a lot of stuff with aviation because I believe one of his parents was worked in aviation. I can't fully remember, but this latest film is like a combination of Japanese historical drama and like a spirited away. And here, uh, a young boy named Mahito, Mahito is moves to with his dad to uh, live with his stepmom after his mother has died tragically in a fire due to a bombing uh, of Tokyo during World War II. And when he oh. goes to um, her, like where the stepmom lives, uh, who's also his aunt, um, thing weird, yeah, weird things start happening around wow. the house and a heron starts talking to him and his stepmom disappears and he must go find her. It is... Absolutely gorgeous. It's much sadder than a lot of his movies in terms of like it's much more melancholy, and it's very much about the pro- like the grieving process and like what it means to go okay. through grief as a child. And a lot of Miyazaki's movies are very mature in that way, but this feels like yeah. he took Spirited Away and took a lot more of the whimsy out of it. Have you seen Spirited Away, Terry? I've seen Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, and Howl's Moving Castle. Okay. So, like, in Spirited Away, where Chihiro is, like, going into the spirit world, and she's kind of, like, a selfish kid, it, here it's more about Mahito's healing journey as he's trying to grapple with his mom's passing. But also, there is a lot of whimsy, but it's split it's it's split more into two parts than a lot of his movies are. And it was, it was interesting okay. because, like... It's not as, you know, he usually has a pretty brief introduction before it gets fully, like, whimsical. But here, it's much more, like, of a gradual build, and then it's just, like, super whimsical and nuts and, like, cosmic, and then it stops. And so the pacing is a little bit weird to me. And I saw okay. the sub, um, the screening, and she wasn't dubbed. So I was wondering if there were some things that maybe might be better translated in the dub. I'm not sure, because the dub has Robert Pattinson as one of the voices as, like, other I was going to say. I know. I was a little <laughs> bit bummed. He voices the Herod, right? Yeah. I was bummed not to hear that. But I Steve wants to see it, so um, we're going to see it again when it's out in theaters. But... I'm still percolating on how I feel about it. It just, it felt such, so much more somber in a way that's Mm. very interesting. But also apparently it is the most expensive film ever produced in Japan. I just learned this. Oh. Huh. Fascinating. It's a long one for an animated two. It's two hours and four minutes. Yeah, a lot, all of his movies are long. (laughs) Are they? Yeah. I'm I'm not as familiar with his work. Uh, Like I said, I've only seen 
those those three. Yeah, Princess Mononoke is pretty long, so is Spirited Away. All of his stuff is pretty long, because it's, it's usually pretty involved. Like, a lot of his work... And it's, it's interesting, because a lot of his work, Howl's Moving Castle deals with war. Like, war. Yes, uh, Grave of the Fireflies was Studio Ghibli, but it wasn't directed by... Yes, it was produced by Studio Ghibli, but it was directed by um, Isao Taka- Takahata. Yeah, so he didn't direct it. But yeah, a lot of... Miyazaki's work has to do with war and like processing grief in but in more fantastical environments and his work has gotten more and more moved away from being as fantastical and more like hey life sucks in like a very interesting way but also with some hope in it and I think it's like it's interesting because it's like him processing his own trauma as a kid around all of this stuff. And it's also very interesting to watch The Boy and the Heron. It's very different. It's very, very different um, circumstances. But watching how war tears people apart and, like, the, like, civilian consequences of war. Um, obviously, World War uh, II and us bombing Japan. I don't believe in any of that. But, like, I know it's very different circumstances. But still, like, this film does look a lot at, like, the civilian toll that war takes and how it wreck so many people which is like unfortunately very prescient right now definitely relevant yeah so um but it's really it's out december 8th in theaters i think i just need to keep sitting on it which is always how i feel about his movies like his movies have so much going on that sometimes like i need to percolate on them and see them again before i fully like digest what's being said he's it's like an it's beautiful it's like absolutely beautiful the music is incredible it's like an absolutely gorgeous movie i just don't know how I feel about the whole story execution yet. Yeah, I, I, I do think because like I when I first saw Princess Mononoke, I was, was like I don't get what all what all the hubbub is about, and then I watched it again a little when I was a little older, and I was like, oh, I'm getting it now, and and so then I felt the same way about Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle. Where like the first time I watched it, I was like, there's a lot happening. I'm not 100 sure how I feel about it, and then you start to like think about it and it percolates and then you realize how good it is. So I'm curious if that'll be similar with this one. Yeah. Cause is this supposed to be his last or did he retract? He that? always says that like he says <laughs> it all the time. I, I don't, I mean, he says it's going to be his last, but I don't, I don't know if I believe that, you know what I mean? Like he said it a couple times mm-hmm. and I'm like, I'll believe it when I see it. I don't think he's going to fully retire until he's actually dead. So let's move on from depressing allegories about the grieving process to, I think might actually also be allegories for the grieving process, the ritualistic murders and meta storytelling. It definitely is in a very I weird think way. I know what this is. So, yeah. yeah. So you had asked me the last time we recorded uh, why I didn't talk about Alan Wake 2, because you expected me to. And it was because I was like literally at the very end and we had it had been like weeks since we'd recorded and I had so much to talk about that I was like, I'm going to wait until I finish it. And weirdly enough, that night I did finish the game after we had done the recording. Oh, Um, cool. Fuck yeah, fuck yeah. And so Alan Wake 2 is the sequel to Alan Wake and it's took 13 years for us to finally get and i'm not even gonna say closure because the way this ends kind of pissed me off oh okay <laughs> uh because it pissed me off in that like there's gonna be a third one or at least of there course. has I mean, to be a third one they they incorporate 
great way too much of the control stuff for it not to at least be like something else coming in that universe you know what i mean like there's no way they're done with it I, Steve hasn't finished it well, yet, so anyway, I'm jumping ahead, but and they they can't they can't leave it here because it literally stops mid something, oh, and fuck I was that. like, no, what <laughs> happens? I hate when no, oh, so annoying. But so Alan Wake is the, the the original Alan Wake. I talked about it on 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 Little Cuts back in October. Um, but it's basically a story of a writer that went to Bright Falls, which is this this kind of Twin Peaks esque town. And when he when he goes there, his wife gets sucked into the lake, and he dives in after her. And then we're in this like waking nightmare of like darkness and light. By the end of that game, he is stuck in this dark world and he's trying to write himself out of it and alan wake 2 takes place 13 years later when some man crawls out of the cauldron lake which is the the big lake in bright falls and then is ritualistically murdered and that causes saga anderson who works for the fbi and her partner um, alex casey to come to town to investigate the murder and discover that this is just a yeah, Saga Anderson, Kate, yep. And find out that this is just the latest in a string of murders that have some similarities. And what I really like about this is that we're following Saga in her in this story she investigates. And then at a certain point in the game, we get to play as both Alan Wake and Saga in their own storylines that are happening pretty much, it seems like pretty much simultaneously. I'm going to say it pretty much because I want to leave it a little <laughs> vague. And what's happening? But what I really like playing a saga is that since she is like an FBI person and she is focusing on investigation, she has this a, a trick that I that we've seen in a lot, like in I believe in Hannibal with like the the mind palace type thing. So she has this mind place where she has like it's like a, a visual recreation of her office, and she has a case board. And as you get new evidence for the case board, you actually are physically putting it on the board and drawing like correlations. And it's a it's cool. fun way of like figuring out the story. And then there's like profiling segments where there's like a little supernatural element where she is like mentally profiling people. Because again, this is in the control universe. So there are some weird supernatural abilities that are going on. And so we're following her. She's trying to figure out who's killing these people and why. And then we're also, figure we're also playing as Alan, who is trying to escape the dark place. Um, by rewriting scenes and his gimmick is that he finds like scenes and he is able to go to a storyboard and change the events of the story to like change the actual gameplay. And so there's some really interesting things going on here. But then on top of that, it is a very meta story. Like Sam Lake, he is the director of the game. I believe he's like the owner of Remedy Entertainment, the company that makes the game. He's been the face of Max Payne. Like they used his face in the original <laughs> yes, Max Payne games. I love it. <laughs> And Alex Casey, Saga's partner, looks just like Max Payne, a.k.a. looks just like Sam Lake. And so we have that going on here. He's inside the game. But then also, there's there's a lot of live action um, <gasps> Yes, the FMV sequences. stuff is so fucking cool. Again, I'm watching Steve play this because... He bought it, and I was like, I lo it's been, like, the one game where I'm like, don't play it if I'm not there. Like, I want to be able, like, yes. I want to watch and, like, see everything happen. And the FMV stuff is so fucking cool how they incorporate it. I won't spoil anything, but, like, I was stoked when that, when that when, like, it hit that point, and I was like, are you mm -hmm. joking? <laughs> one of the, the first sequences, I'm not going to spoil many of them, but I do want to talk about this first sequence, where when you first start to play as Alan Wake, 
it starts as he is like in the green room of some talk show and he is seeing himself on the TV live action. So the live action is on the TV as you're playing the video game character of him and you watch it. And then all of a sudden you were watching like the live action interview and he is so confused as to what's going on. And Sam Lake, AKA the director of Remedy is a guest on this show at the same time. So we have him as like playing Alex Casey, which is sort of like, a Max Payne stand-in while also being in the game as himself in live action. There's just some like really fun, weird meta storytelling going on here. And there's a 15-minute segment that involves live action. Sam Lake Exception. Yes, Kate. Sam Lake Exception. There's this 15-minute segment that just had me smiling. I love how campy and weird this game gets. It surprised me at how campy it is willing to go and how silly it is able to go while also being a story about Alan Wake trying to deal with darkness that is inside of him as well as trying to figure out what's what's going on with his wife that he tried to save at the end of it and there's a whole lot of like dealing with grief in terms of his own character within this and it's it's a fascinating game it, I, I want to play it again just because like I want to experience the story and really think about it because there's so much going on and I just I think I really think it's Remedy Entertainment's best game I can't wait for another one I love it hell yeah I love it. Cool. Yeah, I Steve hasn't finished it yet, but I'm really into it. I think what's been frustrating for him, what I've seen, is like the mechanics are like are a little are they're not as bad as I know they have been in the past, but it's like some of the mechanics are a little janky. It seems like yeah, a lot of like focusing on storytelling more than for like focus storytelling over like not that the game design is bad or like the actual like mechanics are bad but i think like you can tell that how much they care about the story and how that maybe there's a little bit of like us there's a discrepancy between this like the storytelling skills and the mechanic development of the mechanics and like the difficulty curves for some of the boss fights oh I dropped it to easy because they're yeah. the, one of the very first encounters with like a pair of wolves yes! kept killing me oh my God. over and over again. And yeah. I was like, it's so frustrating. And I was like, you know what? I'm dropping the difficulty down because I died so many times at that one encounter. I do think that on a gameplay side, this game is not as great as like control. Control is fun to play. Yeah, I've okay, gotten the shotgun. Okay, Steve didn't get the shotgun at first, and he tried to do a boss fight, and he couldn't do it, and it was because he didn't get the oh. shotgun. So he had to, like, reload. Yeah. yeah, anyway. Yeah, and I, I think, especially coming from, like, Control, which is their last game before Alan Wake 2, um, where it's, I think the gameplay in that is really good, and the story to kind of takes a little bit of a backseat to the gameplay. This is, like, the reverse of that, and I do think that the gameplay is not as good but i also think i don't think the gameplay in alan wake like replaying the first game was very good unfortunately yeah and this one is an improvement on it uh but also i preferred it when i didn't have to shoot monsters yeah oh yeah 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 it's really funny how twin peaks see that like they really just really go full twin peaks in this one where i'm like they're not even trying to hide it No, and I I love some of the the little narratives, and there's, like, Night Springs, which is sort of, like, the Twilight Zone-esque story, like, TV show that people watch, and it also kind of reminds me of Twin Peaks with, like, the, the, um, the soap opera show that people are watching once in a while on that show as well, and so there's, like, definite, it's definite Twin Peaks vibes, but, uh, Imitation to Love, yes, thank you, Kate, yep, exactly. So, yeah, I... But I, I think that this is a very fascinating game. I think it is a very mature and smart game in terms of the storytelling. And I really want to see, I really hope it does well because I need another one. I need another one. 
I need it. So that's Alan Wake 2, out now on PlayStation, Xbox, and PC. Fascinating narratives. Uh, yes. So this is a book I also read while I was in Japan that I was really surprised by. It's called Revenge by Yoko Ogawa. And it is, she's a Japanese writer. And this is a uh, short story anthology, but every piece is somehow linked to each other. And it creates this really interesting, something that always like fascinates me in just like life is, um thinking about how like everyone has their own story and how like you are like you are the NPC in someone else's life basically like when you're walking down the street and this Mm -hmm. book in a pretty creepy way moves in a similar direct has a similar vibe of like every person has their own story and all these weird things connect us like these very weird instances connect us and it's hard to describe it because this whole book just has a very off-putting vibe she writes uh yoko ogawa writes so well this feeling of foreboding like nothing outright like terrifying happens but everything feels like you're on edge like something bad is about to okay. happen, but you don't know what it is. It is deeply uncomfortable the way she writes. And I love that. Like, it's hard to capture that. And it's like a very uncanny way of writing. And I really, it was a book I read in one sitting because I couldn't put it down because of how interesting it was, how she wove together all of the stories. Like each story, like each story, the story that follows the previous one is connected to it somehow, but in a way that you wouldn't expect. And it all kind of comes full circle in this really weird, fucked up, bizarre cycle that um, involves carrots and finger bones and murder. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Wait, it's called Revenge? Who's the the writer? Uh, Yoko Ogawa. Because, like, I'm going to be honest, that is a very uh, hard name to search for revenge yes. book you know what i mean Shock. i know very <laughs> but it's okay i'd heard about this before and it's and it's like if you're looking for japanese fiction written by women <sighs> which part i apparently have the kindle edition that i bought back in april of 2013 how have i not read this <laughs> okay It was named, I think in 2013, was named like one of the best books of the year by NPR. That's probably why I bought it. I think, yeah, because it's so bizarre and just like it's narrative and it's really good. This is hilarious that I own this book and I've never read it. I love that so much. (laughs) You just own it. Yep. Hell yeah. (laughs) Isn't it great? I mean, I do that all the time. I'm like, oh, I bought that. But that sounds fascinating. It's really good and just like very like uncanny, weird. Like it's horror, but not like horror the way you'd expect it to be. It's just, it's a book that's vibes are very hard to describe, but I know that people listening to this podcast will really be into them. So if you're looking for something, just like it's only 162 pages. It's a pretty quick read. So if you're looking for something to read when you don't want to do with your family, Give this one a shot. Hell yeah, I'm uh, I'm gonna download it to my Kindle. Hell yeah, read it. <laughs> um, that's so wild. That is incredible. But I want to hear about Indiana Jones and Hell. That's so funny because I was watching Indiana Jones on Pluto yesterday. So oh well, this is as above, so below. Oh my god. <laughs>
<laughs> like I knew and I forgot. You know what I mean? Like you know what I mean? Like I <laughs> found footage, huh? Yeah, found footage. Doing a found footage Our series found footage that I series. obviously forgot how to introduce. Um, cool, cool, cool. Doing this for a long time. Uh. Yeah, so in case- I mean it has been a minute since <laughs> we've uh, since we've done a series. Like since August, September maybe? It could been Yeah, a I think you're right cuz I think it It was no, it was before it was you went, before to, go I film. went to go film. Yeah, ever since I filmed. So it's been a it's been a minute. Whew. Yes, wow. Time is fake. Good lord. But yeah, so we are doing um yeah, it was Final, Final Destination, Destination, Kate. That is that is where yeah. we, we ended on. Yep, Final Destination. Um, but yeah, so we were doing the, the found footage, and we started with As Above, So Below, uh, the t- 2014 movie that takes place in the catacombs beneath the streets of Paris. and By the Dodal Brothers, and I'm wearing the Poughkeepsie Tape shirt, which is appropriate. You sure are. A movie I've never seen. We gotta change that someday for some, for some series i'm not sure which one yet but it's gonna change it's just i'm not sure which which venue but you would so you have seen as above so below before correct i have okay. yes um and i think i saw it i think i think this is the third time i've seen it i remember seeing it when it came out and i, I think the problem with this film is timing because by 2014 it seemed like yeah um bad there was some really bad like mainstream found footage films like as as i have learned since then that like the best (laughs) found footage films around this time were a lot of more of the indie stuff but like hollywood went hard on found footage and by the time this one came out i think there was like mainstream found footage fatigue and i remember not really caring for this one and then i remember watching it again i want to say it was back in 2018 or so somewhere around there and being like oh this is actually very interesting and has some very cool things uh that it's that it's doing particularly with like the idea of cosmic horror and like surreal imagery and just like the imagination on screen in terms of like some of the creepiness that's happening towards the end of this movie is uh is wild it's wild. I found myself really enjoying it a whole lot more than I expected. I did, and, and the reason why I did put Anania Jones in hell is that it made me laugh, because I, for, I always forget that this movie opens with our main character, Scarlet, in Iran, trying to, like, find some statue or something. Yeah, the statue and, like, of the code keeps... of, like, where, it's, like, basically, like, the code of where to find the stone. The Philosopher's Stone, the Philosopher's yeah. Stone. And so, and... It, it reminded me, it was like, oh, this is basically Indiana Jones as a found footage film that gets fucked up by the end of it. And yeah, I um, I, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. I think I was, I forgot that Ben Feldman is in this and I think he is such a cutie. Okay, he's like the cute, he's the cute, nerdy love interest slash dork who mm-hmm. lives in the bell towers of a church. Like, it's always like the dork who's like the hunchback of Notre Dame. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but he's so yeah. cute. So I saw this movie for the first time, actually, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, And this was the movie that, like, reignited my love for found footage. Uh, Like, fully reignited it. Because I'd always loved found footage, but, like, I hadn't done the deep dive. And this was a movie, like, towards the beginning of quarantine, where I was like, I've never seen this. Like, this looks, like, fun. I've heard good things about it. Like, 
Tomb Raider found footage. Like, fuck, let's fucking go. Like, why not? We're stuck in the house. And then after I watched it, <laughs> I just, like, was, like, my mind has been blown. I can't wait to watch more found footage movies. Like, this is such a fascinating topic and, like, how it's been done. And I think I had, like, thought it wasn't... Again, like you said, it didn't really get a lot of buzz when it came out, and it didn't get a lot of attention at first. But like, it's incredibly effective and creepy, and fucked up and smart. And it's one of the only found footage movies where we have a lot of like a lot of people survive. Um, it's not just that, that's what I was realized on this watch. Found footage of a bunch of dead people, but people survive. And it's actually, like, a quasi-happy ending. And also, like, a woman is the voice of this whole thing. And it's got, like, that, that Blair Witch vibe of, like, the woman in charge. And she's, like, going too far. But they give her even more depth in this one. Like, and I think you understand her motivations even more. But they really push the found footage budget so, so well. In terms of what they're able to accomplish visually. And, like, in terms of fear. It's so good and so impressive in what it's doing and how it's constructing this idea of like historical documentary and then her ego fueling that and also kind of talking about a little bit about like imperialism and that kind of thing and it's also just so smart in how it handles religious horror we don't see religious mm. horror like this and this is like technically religious horror like you could say it's not but there is oh, a lot of religious is. horror but it's not I mean, it's based on Dante's Inferno. Yeah, and it, but it's not the typical religious horror you see. And if you haven't seen the Australian found footage movie The Tunnel, there are a lot of similar vibes. Not in t- not in like top like you left before that we could see the tunnel at unnamed footage. Yeah, festival, I couldn't. Right? I could not see it. So when it hit the festival, I really want to see that though. Their stories are not the same, but like the trapped in the tunnels and like only being only seeing things with your flashlight and not knowing like what is going on very similar vibes of claustrophobia um i mean some of this was giving me descent vibes yeah in terms of like particularly the moment when um they're crawling over bones and the tunnel collapses behind them i was like the claustrophobia in this was giving me descent feel yeah i also think it's it's interesting that this team did the poughkeepsie tape poughkeepsie 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 tapes and then would go on to do quarantine which we did cover on the podcast it was a very weird episode and then quarantine two and then this one and so it's it's weird to me to see that because i did not like quarantine (laughs) and yet this one is such a strong film well and i think it's because they are like allowed to do their own ideas you know what i mean like i feel like it's so hard to adapt wreck because quarantine is just like shot for shot wreck but not Mm-hmm. it's like it's hard to make wreck better like well, how do you improve upon or like make wreck any different other than having like the weird post 9-11 vibes to it um but i think with where they shine is when they're able to be really fucking weird and be fucked up yeah and like go to these really weird parts of what found footage can be and they hit two very different ends of the spectrum with poughkeepsie tapes and as above so below but I think it's really cool to see how they think about uh, found footage and how to capture it. And is it Perdita Weeks? Is that her name? She's incredible as Scarlet. Like, she is really I good. Mm-hmm. Love her as Scarlet. Um, 
I love a good female found footage lead who like has I think that's the thing I like, I like about this movie as well as the characters like they really try to give you characters to like and I think a lot of found footage movies don't do a great job at that um I true and I think it's so important with this format especially to get to know your characters and to get to, like have sympathy for them and see them as people and this movie really gets to that i think especially with scarlet and understanding like why she is the way she is so this was an enjoyable um revisit for me and i just i love some of the images like i was i was writing about like the when in my notes there's like statues coming out of the wall and one of them like moves and tears the throat out of george there's like hands coming out of the bloodstream it's just like there's this one very striking image of feet that are just sticking out of the ground oh it's so good and it's just like there's so many moments like that that i'm just like okay yeah i'm really vibing with the what the fuck is happening vibe of this of this last half well and i just i also love this interpretation of hell like this is not a hell we we see this is like a very right. kind of it's like anti it's like anticlimactic. It's all it's literally just like a hole in the ground and it's cold, mm-hmm. dark rocks, but then just tormented souls. And I think it's and but also then also making you confront all of your sins over and over again. And I think it is such a smart depiction of hell and depiction of how you get into hell and I think, it, again, like, it plays with these ideas of alchemy and things we've heard about before, but makes it feel so fresh. And, again, utilizing the found footage format, not necessarily in, like, a super original way, but in a very smart way. And I think that's what is so good about it, is they really understand how to make a found footage movie. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely... I don't know if underrated is, is the right word, but it's almost underrated in terms of how it almost got left behind and that, like found at like the post found footage boom um i mean i would say it's definitely underrated because like on the critics side it had a 28 percent approval rating on rotten tomatoes and on the cinema score for like the audience they gave it a a c minus and cinema score is one of those weird audience pulling things where it's like a lot of times it's just a scale of did the audience get what they were expecting and i'm like what were you expecting from a movie that is literally about going under the catacombs of Paris and exploring hell. Like what, what were you? Cause like, I feel like that should have been a higher rating for audiences because you get literally what <laughs> the movie's advertising itself to be. So it's not like it's a bait and switch type thing. No. So I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. The critics, I can, I can understand just because I do think that there was a lot of found footage fatigue. And so I think critics, particularly at that time, where there wasn't probably as, as many horror critics oh, in yeah. the Rotten Tomatoes sphere. We're just like, oh, it's another found footage film and just wrote it off is probably unfortunately what happened. So yes, yeah. I do think it is underrated. I think that is an appropriate use for this movie. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, no, I I agree that there weren't as many like horror dedicated people, I think, reviewing at that point so it was easier for these kinds of things to get written off mm-hmm. um yeah it does seem yeah, more well regarded it's well regarded right, in Kate. horror spheres you know like it's got that reappraisal mm-hmm. from found footage people um but yeah it's definitely like has like culty status around it yeah i think cool well oh i'm so sorry so that about does it for this week's 
little cuts, but we are continuing our found footage series next week. I'm very excited because I am finally making Terry watch Cronewood, which is one of my all-time favorite found footage movies. Does a lot of really interesting stuff with flipping the script on sexual assault, um, especially uh, male sexual assault. So some trigger warnings for that. Oh. Um, and playing with like point POV on camera and consent. It's very, very good. I'm very excited for you to watch interesting. it. Because I think it is incredibly smart. And listeners, if you want to follow along with us, we it is on it is streaming on Tubi. Yes, it is streaming uh, for free in a so. bunch of places. Uh, so check it out. It's really good. And then, Terry, who are we talking to on uh, Sunday? Oh, my God. So we recorded this last night, finally. We had a couple of um, we had a couple of speed bumps getting this to happen. But it happened, and we chatted with Anna um, Zlokovich, who is the writer and director of Hulu's Appendage. And she is an absolute delight. Yes. And she brought with her Eraserhead. Yeah, and it's fun. To let you know the laugh that escaped my body unbidden at one point in this conversation. I This one is for the books. This one is probably one of my favorites that we've recorded for a while just because of how... Just get prepared. There's a couple. There's some. uh, I have a fan. I have a fan theory that gets a little out of hand. So. Uh, it was. It was so good. good. I've been laughing about it all day. So I can't wait to share this one. (laughs) Yeah, and so after you listen to the episode, you'll you'll understand the gift that I attached to that tweet. If you go back and look at the tweet, I. um, not the song. Anyway, uh, get excited. It's a good one. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, All right, listeners. Oh, my goodness. Jesus. You heard from us. We want to hear from you. Did you watch a film, read a book, or played one of the games, or played the game we talked about this week? Do you have suggestions for our next series? You can let us know by sending us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to out reach reaching out to us on social media. I am at MB McAndrews on Twitter and Blue Sky and MB.McAndrews on Instagram. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful everywhere. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on socials at Scarred Podcast on Twitter and Blue Sky and at Scarred for Life Podcast on Instagram. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. And um, we will be opening up Patreon again soon. So if you want to help support us, that would be lovely. Woo! Thank you to Eric Parr for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. <laughs>